Workforce Health Engagement Episode 2, Wellness Communication and Education, Which Information and Messages Truly Help, featuring Tom Rath. Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Engagers. One of the most common components of a workforce health strategy is wellness communication and education. Messages and information to motivate and equip employees and their families to avoid or reduce health risks, improve well-being, and prevent the development of serious and expensive health problems. Often, a wellness program vendor, as part of their standard program, will include some wellness communications and education. For example, in website articles, postcards and e-cards, and newsletter articles. A big problem, though, is people are already bombarded with conflicting health information. The most important thing is to include whole grains in your diet. Grains and other carbs are bad for you. Probiotics boost immunity and digestion and so forth. While the company's efforts may be well-intentioned, employees can end up feeling confused and overwhelmed. It doesn't influence behaviors in a positive way, and it doesn't boost employee trust and confidence in your overall healthcare strategy. So it caught our attention at Asmodale Communications, when research scientist Tom Rath published the book, Eat, Move, Sleep, Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference. Tom is a senior scientist at Gallup, and his books have sold more than 5 million copies. His previous bestseller was Well-Being, The Five Essential Elements. It's a solid, fairly short book that's given me some great insight in helping our clients improve employee well-being in areas like physical health, financial health, and so forth. His newest book, Eat, Move, Sleep, goes into a deeper dive on physical well-being. What Tom did was wade through a lot of available studies to find truly evidence-based practices. And in particular, he discovered small steps that can provide people with more energy in the moment and improve their long-term health along the way. So it basically appeals to people's more immediate motivations because they get some immediate benefit now, but it also helps their long-term health. Tom, along the way, also discovered a virtuous eat-move-sleep cycle where eating better makes it easier to move and sleep better, and moving more makes it easier to eat and sleep better, and so forth. It's basically a three-legged stool of health And it makes a great framework for wellness communications. It cuts through a lot of that clutter and conflicting information. And the book also has a lot of simple steps that people can essentially put on autopilot that makes it easier, more automatic, but actually makes a difference in their life. Now, this interview with Tom Rath originally aired on our Engaging Leader podcast in October 2013 when the book was first released. Let's listen to this interview with Tom, and at the end, I'll share a bit about how we've been using the book's evidence-based information to engage employees for our clients at Aspendale Communications. 
Tom, you have used your research skills in the past to help individuals discover their personal strengths and to help organizations improve their employee engagement. In this book, you help individuals and leaders cut through the clutter of all the health information that's out there to discover the stuff that really works, that holds up to the scrutiny of a researcher and a scientist like you. But why did you choose to focus all this time and effort on physical health? You had both a business reason and a personal reason. The more time I spent with big businesses around the country, in the U.S. in particular, I realized that poor health is probably the biggest business challenge that big companies face today. But as you mentioned, it was really some of my own personal research and exploration that led me to this topic where I found out when I was about 16 years old that I had a real rare genetic disorder called von Hippel-Lindau that causes cancer to grow throughout the body, a very high likelihood in your brain and spine and kidneys. And I first found out because I had uh, cancer on my left eye and lost all vision in my left eye permanently when I was about 16. And that's when I had all the genetic tests to determine if I had this very rare disorder. And sure enough, the doctors told me back then that uh, I was more than likely to face cancer in all those different parts of my body over the span of a lifetime. And so that would require, obviously, a lot of scanning and monitoring and surgeries over the years. But at the same time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, most intensively, I started to ask the question of what are the things that I could do in terms of my own decisions and habits and lifestyle and diet and everything else in order to get ahead of that and kind of slow the progression of my existing cancers and hopefully prevent a few in the future. And as I got into more and more of that research, especially in the last five or 10 years, I realized that there's an unbelievable amount of good research on this topic and really countless things that all of us can do, not only to prevent cancer, but perhaps most importantly, to prevent heart disease, which is an even bigger killer that's more preventable, and diabetes and obesity and all of these other ailments that are taking the lives of people that we love and resulting in people that we care about suffering unnecessarily in the second part of their life in particular. So after helping a lot of friends and relatives and colleagues deal with some of these challenges over the last decade, I decided to commit all of my attention to that topic, if for no other reason than to compile some of this information for the sake of the people that I care about most. So you basically have essentially been fighting for your life because I think you said that every year you have new tumors getting started somewhere in your body. And so you basically playing defense. Yet in reality, we're all, we don't realize it, but we're making small decisions several times a day that are either shortening or lengthening our life, as well as increasing or decreasing the life that goes into each day in terms of the amount of energy and our mood and the impact that has on other people. And of course, healthcare is just becoming an ever-increasing problem in our country as we have an epidemic of obesity and all the other uh, health-related issues that go on with that and the escalating healthcare costs. So you're taking a very, what could be just a very personal journey, and you are, your last book really talked about helping from the organizational level help uh, on the well-being front. And this is really about how personal people uh, can make those small choices uh, in their lives and as leaders. What made you decide to focus on those three factors, though, eat, move, sleep? Well, you know, it's it's kind of interesting where even in an extreme case like mine, where, as you mentioned, my life kind of depends on making good decisions, that still, to be really honest, it, it doesn't prevent me from um, 
having a sugary soda this afternoon where you can't see the immediate impact. It doesn't prevent me from having a milkshake or a bacon cheeseburger or anything else that's bad for my health. What what helps me to make better decisions today is knowing that if I have a, a light salad and tea and water and other healthy things early in the day, I'll have more energy in the afternoon and I'll have more energy tonight when I get home to play with my two young kids. And so what I've learned is, and this is probably more pronounced where people have heart disease and that's the accumulation of something that builds up over decades. And then you have a heart attack when you're 55, 60 years old, and it's almost too late to reverse a lot of that damage. So what I learned through all this research is that the key is to try and connect some of those more short-term or near-term motivations with little decisions that we can make that most importantly lead to better days today, lead to having more energy tomorrow, lead to more productivity, better relationships, and so forth in the next week. And over time, that starts to serve those longer-term interests that we're talking about and helping people to live longer and be in better health when they're old and so forth. But we need to get back to some of the real tactical things on a day-to-day basis. So when I started working on the book, Eat, Move, Sleep, my goal was to distill the most essential elements of things that people could do tomorrow to create a little bit of change in their lives. And when I started boiling those recommendations down, it really comes back to those three things of eating and moving and sleeping. And what I started to realize as I did the research is, you know, it would be real easy to work on one of those things and say, I'm going to get in shape from an activity or an exercise standpoint by itself, or I'm going to work on a new diet. And in fact, that's how most people embark on change right now. But what the research suggests very clearly is that If you work on all three of those things in combination, it's not more daunting. It's actually easier if you do all three at once. So if I get a good night's sleep today, it's easier to eat a light, healthy breakfast tomorrow. It's easier to get more activity. If I get more activity tomorrow, I get a better night's sleep the following night, and it starts an upward spiral where those three elements truly build on one another. That's just amazing. So it's basically this this virtual cycle, and you call it the, the eat, move, sleep equation, where if you just if you just get started anywhere on that loop, it's going to make it easier to go to the next part of the equation and and together eat, move, sleep. I got to believe that the sleep part of that is surprising to a lot of business leaders. That it seems like okay, we've been hearing forever about the importance of nutrition and exercise, but sleep it's got to be the 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 one leg of that stool that is often too short. You know, I think it's clearly the most underrated of those three elements in terms of its importance. And I, like a lot of us, I assume, who have uh, been in business and leadership roles, I grew up in a culture, both personally as a young kid, looking up to my role models, and especially male, male role models in particular. And then as I entered the work world of, you know, it was kind of a macho badge of courage to say, I only slept four hours last night, but I still closed a deal. And I can get by on only five or six hours of sleep. And so that was my mindset and mentality, frankly, when I entered the workforce until recently, as I started to get into more of this research. And as it turns out, if you get a good night's sleep, not only does it help you to store all the things you learned the night before and make you smarter over time, but it actually allows you to get more done the next day. I was kind of taken aback when I looked into, you know, there are those studies by Kay Anders Erickson that everyone likes to talk about where they he found that you need 10,000 hours of deliberate practice in order to be real successful in a profession and so on. And so that's really sparked a debate about the role of effort versus natural talent that we could spend a whole show on. But <laughs> the thing that was so interesting to me when I went back and really looked at the depth of his research is that the best performers across all of those positions 
one of the most uh, striking differentiating factors was that they slept longer than the lower performers. And sure enough, if you look at that data, they slept about 8.6 hours on average, which is a full hour longer than the average American worker sleeps in a given night. So it's a little counterintuitive there to think that if you need, if you want to have extreme performance, you need to get a better night's sleep. And so I've, I know on a personal level, I've sure taken some of that learning to heart. And when I have my most important days in terms of uh, presentations or meetings or really need to get a lot done from a writing or an editing standpoint, I make sure I go to, go to bed early and get a good night's sleep the night before. Yeah, that is so counterintuitive, if you will, based on what we've a lot of us have been taught. I know it, definitely my whole first decade of my career, I was much closer to a six or seven hour average. And about 10 years ago, I started to just view sleep as an investment. And I still break that rule sometimes. And I, I always kick myself because it's so obvious the next day that my productivity is down, um, I, my creativity is off. And so did I really gain anything by scrimping on an hour or two or more of sleep? Uh, I, I basically, you know, maybe my eight or 10 hour workday the next day would have been much more effective and, and made up for going to sleep earlier. Yeah, it's one of those things we just don't, we probably don't talk about enough in the modern workplace where um, it's in your employer's best interest and your manager and peer's best interest to make sure that everyone has kind of the time and opportunity to get enough sleep to be effective in their job each day because your clients and your customers and your colleagues, I mean, it's, it's interesting because sleep's one of those, one of the few things that's visible on the outside as quickly or more quickly than it's visible in terms of what it does internally. So when you meet someone in a business context, let's say it's a new client or a customer, and you appear very sleep deprived, that's that's not good for a first impression in a business standpoint. You're probably not as sharp cognitively when you have interactions with your clients and coworkers on those days. And so, I mean, I've kind of learned to value that when I have a meeting with people in my office to say, you know, I, I, I hope people show up who have been well rested because they'll have a lot more to contribute. You also mentioned in the book that getting fewer than six hours of sleep a night is one of the top factors for burnout on the job. Yeah, you know, it's something that it's been good to see more conversation in the last five years about how people can manage their performance and energy in the workplace, because we, we really do our best work when we do work in bursts instead of long, continuous slogs of work that if someone's, it is kind of interesting to me where I might have thought that if someone were uh, really engaged in their job and they loved what they did, that they could just work, I don't know, 65, 70 hours and still enjoy doing that. That's what I would have thought about a year ago. And then we we conducted some research at Gallup looking at, uh, we segmented workers by people who were not very engaged in their jobs, they're disengaged. And then we had not engaged and very highly engaged. And if you're not, basically this is how it played out. If you're not engaged in your, if you're disengaged in your job, I should say, you burn out after about 20 hours a week. So it's a, if you don't like what you're doing, it's a really low threshold. If you're in that middle camp where you're just kind of not engaged in the middle, you can work about 40 hours a week before you experience burnout. If you're truly engaged in your job, you can get up to 55 or 60 hours before you hit that burnout point. But even if you love what you're doing and you're really engaged in your job, that evidence that I've looked at suggests it's still not a good idea to go over 60 hours a week. Hmm. 
in the book you talk, there's a bit of a virtuous cycle there too. The more you like your work, the better you're going to sleep at night, the easier you'll have sleeping. Um, and, and the opposite, if you've got a job that just is stressing you out, it's, it's harder to sleep. So, uh, but, but then the opposite, if you are getting less than six hours of sleep a night, it's a top risk factor for burnout on the job. So if you, if you both invest in sleep and invest in finding work that is particularly engaging for you, that's a, that's a virtuous cycle. It is. Yeah. And it's interesting how, I mean, the, the sleep not only builds from a personal level so that you eat better in the morning if you get a good night's sleep and so forth, but it's also starts the right cycle in a workplace there in terms of all the things that you do and your energy and your interactions with colleagues where it makes such a difference. So I think the most progressive workplaces that I've studied, in addition to kind of having the right foods and all the typical things you'd think of from a diet standpoint, they are concentrating on making sure that people have the right flexibility with their schedules for commuting, telework, everything else. And that in many cases, providing time or on-site facilities for people to exercise, which makes a large difference in people's energy in the workplace as well. Now, the subtitle of your book is Why Small Choices Make a Big Difference. And the book is just loaded with great tips. And I started to find that it was what I like to do is just read one chapter per day and then start to put some of those ideas into play. And so I'm wondering if we could pick a handful of small choices that would make a big difference in particular for business leaders, either for our own productivity or for our leadership. For example, there's some tips that you talk about that basically improve your energy and your mood, which research has shown uh, has a huge impact on the whole culture of your organization. If the if the leader has a generally has a good mood, then the the overall organization's culture and productivity will be better. Um, what 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 is that? Can you give me an example of one of the those small choices that is really a big investment in yourself as a leader? Yeah, you know, I think if there's one thing that leaders in organizations could start thinking about tomorrow that would change their workplace and eventually the state of health in our country a little bit to a lot, it would be helping people to value even brief movement and interaction throughout the day. It's if, if you look at it from kind of a broad sociological standpoint, and you go back 50 years, activity was built into almost all jobs or a majority of jobs and professions 50 years ago. And now we, we've essentially just engineered movement and activity out of our lives from a work standpoint. So we can now take a few clicks and someone from Amazon shows up with a new stack of paper so we don't have to go to the office supply store. We can have a printer right next to our desk. We fill a drawer with all kinds of things. We make a phone call or a video conference instead of walking down the hallway. And it's those little things that have caused a lot of problems in terms of how sedentary, especially we are as Americans today. The average American gets about five, 6,000 steps a day, which is nowhere near what we need just in order to kind of sustain our energy throughout the day. And so the organizational leaders who I've admired most, they make a real effort to say, we value getting up, walking around, talking to people, having open environments in our workplace. If they, if leaders have any influence in kind of the setup and architecture that encourage people to get up and move around. Uh, one of my favorite stories was from uh, Doug Conant back when he was CEO at Campbell's a few years ago. And for at least an hour or two every day, he'd put on these white 
tennis shoes and just walk around the office and roam the halls and talk to people. And it it sent two messages. It sent a message not only about the activity and putting on his walking shoes to walk around, which he wanted everyone to be doing, but the interaction with his employees and colleagues interacting with one another is probably just as valuable from a social standpoint. One of the things that surprised me, and I immediately started changing my own behavior, is how you said you wrote a good deal of this book. Because you looked at your past experience and saw that when you were working on a book, you actually were basically chained to your desk. And so you made a change in how you worked on this book. Yeah, I, you know, it was kind of an experiment in itself for me in that I wasn't sure I'd I'd read a lot of articles on people using sit up, uh, sit and stand desks that kind of are a combination of sitting and standing and treadmill desks and bicycle desks and everything else. So I'd explored that quite a bit. But I'm sure, like a lot of people, I never had the psychological courage to bring a treadmill into my office, just not knowing how, how people would look at me when they walked by. <laughs> um, <laughs> And eventually, when I started to work on this book, I decided, you know, I'm going to try doing the writing and editing uh, on a treadmill desk in my home office and just see how it works. And so, I I already had a treadmill at home in my uh, basement. Like a lot of people with clothes hanging on, it didn't get enough use. (laughs) And I decided to, I went to Home Depot and I bought a shelf, just a a basic particle board and put it over the armrests and put a keyboard tray on it with some screws and uh, mounted my monitor on the wall there so I could uh, work on my computer. And sure enough, after a month into it, I I, I determined that I was able to walk for a majority of the day at a pace of about 1.5 to 2 miles an hour. And at that pace, I could type and edit and use my uh, trackpad and get at least as much work done as if I was sitting in a chair. And what was interesting is, you know, normally when I would sit and type and edit, I'd have these bursts in the morning where I'd get most of my work done before 11 o'clock or noon. But as I started to work while walking on the treadmill, I found that I had just as much energy at two or three o'clock in the afternoon, which I'd never experienced before. And I was able to, I mean, on on my best days there, I would write 20 to 30,000 words and I'd walk excuse me, sorry, 20 to 30,000 steps, and I'd uh, write about uh, five to 10,000 words a day. So it wow. it worked out remarkably well where my productivity was higher. And, you know, to this day, I for the last week here, I still walk 20 or 30,000 steps on my treadmill a day. And on days when I have to travel or go sit through meetings, it, it's it's kind of hard on my body. I, I, I see a marked difference where I just kind of long for the days when I can be walking the whole time because it's that much more effective for me. You talk about how it's, even if you if you have a sedentary lifestyle, which is a lot of us who have desk jobs, and we sit on our rear ends for almost all day, that even if you went out and exercised two hours a day vigorously, that it probably wouldn't be enough, which is surprising to a lot of people. And then, so in what you're recommending is, Figure out how you could fit in an hour of exercise, sure, of vigorous exercise, but in addition to that, uh, figure out how you could more naturally work in practices like that and and just getting more movement in general throughout the day. Yeah, you know, the more I read on this topic and study it, at least in my own personal experience, I think that having a day where you're up and moving around 
at least two, three times every hour, even if it's just to go get a cup of coffee or take a break to talk to someone, that having a good amount of activity throughout the day is even more important than that hour of exercise. So, frankly, when I have to prioritize between the two right now, when my days are busy and it's either kind of walking throughout the day because I have a lot to get done on my computer or exercising for a full hour, I often prioritize the kind of moderate to basic activity throughout the day because it seems to be more important for my own health and energy. And that's something that I think you see in the research as well, that where you study people who do exercise a full hour every day, five or six days a week, you see that if they go sit for eight or nine hours in their job, it does not, that exercise doesn't counter the lack of activity throughout the day. So the key is just to I mean, not obviously, it's not practical for everyone to walk on a treadmill while they work all day. And more, more and more companies are putting that in as an option where people can uh, kind of rotate and take time on a walking station, which is great. But mm-hmm. if you don't have that option, to set up something simple where you can stand up and work part of the time, even if it's just – I mean, I started by stacking my computer monitor on a stack of books in my office and I was standing part of the time sitting down. That helps a little bit because it gives you a break where you can move up and down Um, or setting a simple timer that reminds you to get up every 20 or 30 minutes and take a break. That should counteract some of the kind of damaging physiological effects of being completely seated and sedentary for a full hour or two hours, which is where your muscles start to kind of shut down and deactivate. And you see real changes in the bloodstream when people look at this experimentally. I have used a standing desk for the last five years and and have liked that. But it's only been since I read your book that I was really struck by that treadmill idea. And, And so far, I have not figured out how to really incorporate it all day long or anything like that. But I have started to think about, now, is this an activity that I could do on a treadmill? So uh, if I'm reading up on something on my iPad, that's obviously something I could do on the treadmill. Um, Or even if I'm just reading a book on my Kindle, sometimes instead of laying on the couch, which is kind of my preferred way, I'll, I I, I just say, well, let me just go do this on the treadmill. And, And you're right, there's a certain slow pace that is very doable. It's not as onerous as it might sound. And then you're, it's, it's actually very energizing. It, it's, uh, it's pretty powerful. Now, the other thing is to think about which conference calls, if you're on a conference call or even a face-to-face meeting, could you do those taking a walk outside? And I, that's been helpful to me too. And, and you said that's basically Steve Jobs inspired a lot of people that way because he, that was his preferred way of having a meeting. Yeah, it was really interesting when I read his uh, that great uh, autobiography by Walter Isaacson of Jobs, and I think it was in there where he said, you know, that someone asked him, why do you do these walking meetings, or why do you always ask people to go for a walk when you have meetings? He said, well, I do it because I think better when I'm walking, and it's I, that's what I've observed that if you're, especially if you're walking at a pace where you feel comfortable and you're not sweating or out of breath, for example, not only do you have a little bit more mental energy, but it, it allows you to maintain that energy uh, over the course of a day if you if you kind of figure out how to manage that right. How about one of your other the other legs of this three legged stool eating? What what are some of the one or two of the easiest things that uh, small choices that someone could put into practice to change their their eating? Yeah, you know the one thing that's helped me out quite a bit, just in terms of a quick kind of a mental shortcut, is to think about each bite 
or drink that I take as either being a what I call a net gain or a net loss. So we make so many little choices throughout the day from a food standpoint that, I mean, I'll go uh, grab a salad for lunch here today. And not everything that's on that salad is going to be perfectly healthy for me. But if you start to think about how can you maybe skip some of the real heavy or thick dressing you put on it or the fried chicken pieces or bacon bits or something and make the overall meal that you're eating more positive than negative, that's been a quick mental shortcut from a diet standpoint that's helped me out quite a bit. So that's one. The the second one that I've just personally found real helpful is to look at the label real carefully and study the ratio of protein versus carbohydrates in a given portion. So if you have a packaged meal, it's real easy to look on the label. A lot of restaurants are now including that information. And the goal is to bring those two into balance where you're as close as possible to one gram of protein for one gram of carbohydrates. If you, in contrast, if you were to look at a bag of snack chips or most uh, snack bars that you see in a grocery store, they'll have a ratio of about 10 carbohydrates for every one gram of protein, which usually when you have more carbohydrates like that, not only do the carbohydrates convert to glucose when they enter your bloodstream, but they're also more likely to be high in sugar, which is a big problem that after the low-fat craze 10, 15 years ago, we essentially replaced that with carbohydrates and sugars. So it's important to look out for items that are high in carbs and sugars in particular. So that's a lot easier rule of thumb, I think, than trying to keep track of how many calories you've eaten throughout the day. Um, but simply looking and seeing, do the carbs roughly equal the grams of protein? Uh, that's that's a lot easier thing for me to keep track of and make a quick decision about. It is. Yeah, that's, I, I was, that's what I was trying to think about is well, what are things that are quick shortcuts that are a little bit more sustainable? I think one of the challenges I see when I look across the landscape of what people are doing to improve their health, at least in the United States, is that uh, people are quick to jump from one diet to the next or one fad or craze. And well, a lot of those diets and programs have very helpful elements, in many cases, they're not that sustainable. So what I was looking to do in this book, especially in that eat section you're talking about, is to pull some of the best elements that people can kind of build into a more sustainable lifestyle so they don't have to worry about jumping from one diet to the next or targeting weight loss at some point and then targeting something that lowers your cholesterol the next and so forth where it's more about what's what what are common ways to build good health over time yeah and i like your you definitely have a focus in this book on things that kind of make thing the, the choices seem automatic if you will so that it, it does stay as a sustainable virtual cycle instead of something that you're constantly fighting up over. Yeah, you know, that's, it's, that's another really good point from a shortcut standpoint, which is if you can figure out a way to set the right, what I'd call daily defaults in terms of food choices, it makes everything so much easier. Where I've come to realize in my own life that what I purchase or don't buy in the grocery store aisle is 10 times as important as anything that goes on at home. Because if I make a poor choice and buy the wheat thins or chocolates or something indulgent in the grocery store aisle, once those are in my cupboard at home or in there in a drawer in a desk in my in my office, I will absolutely, absolutely eat those. And in most cases, I'll eat them as quickly as possible without even thinking while I'm doing something else. Mm-hmm. And so... 
if you can structure your home and your work environment so that the things that you see on a day-to-day basis are healthy options. So you might have nuts or carrots or apples or greens, any, anything that's a better option at eye level in your refrigerator, at eye level in, in your pantry, or sitting out in your office or on your desk instead of candies or chocolates or whatever else, those little changes make a difference over time. Because even if you are doing the calorie counting, for example, you often don't stop and count the little handful of M&Ms you grabbed when you walk by somebody's desk. Now, I think we already talked about how sleep can have a big impact on your mood and energy and how that affects the people that you work with. Does what you eat have a similar impact? So if I eat well, And if I am maybe providing a good example for the people I work with, is it likely to to create more a better mood and better energy in our in our work culture? That you know, that's actually a very very important point when when thinking about what organizational leaders can do, because it's a fine line where people are reluctant to hear their employers or their boss or leaders in the organization tell them what they should or should not eat. That comes across as creepy and intimidating, and I I think it'll backfire in a lot of cases. you got to be careful with it. Mm -hmm. But what what leaders can do is set a really good example, not only in terms of what they're doing themselves personally, but then when they have events, company events, for example, bringing in healthy foods and healthy options and showing their employees that even if it costs them a little extra money, they value providing high-quality, nutritious foods for their people. That that sends a real statement as well. So I think one of the most important things a leader can do is lead by example with their dietary exercise and sleep choices and then to talk about that openly with their people and their social networks and to explain how it's helped to make them a better worker, a better servant of their clients and customers and a a better spouse and parent as well. I think you got to bring a lot of that together. What about when you go out and eat with coworkers? You use a term that I hadn't heard before uh, called anchoring. Can you explain that concept? Yeah, it's interesting. Anchoring is a popular term in the world of behavioral economics, which you think might be kind of unrelated to the book I'm working on here. But what the behavioral economists have found is that they, they study this, uh, this uh, phenomenon with finances most commonly. And they find that if the price is anchored at $100 and then you put it on, put an item on sale for $75, everyone thinks they're getting a great deal. And so wherever that initial anchor is set, it influences behaviors and choices. And so what other studies around uh, decisions and health and nutrition have suggested is that when someone places an order at a restaurant, if you're with a group of five friends, let's say, that first order essentially anchors other people's decisions at the table. And I've, I've seen how that plays out in my own life where if I see someone order the bacon cheeseburger that I was really tempted to get, it essentially gives me permission to make a lousy choice as well. If I see someone else order a real healthy meal and make a good decision, I'm a lot less likely to splurge or indulge on that choice. So that gives us an opportunity when we're dining out to, I mean, even if you don't want to or feel comfortable subtly trying to influence other people's decisions just for your own sake to state your own order first (laughs) and make a good choice and that locks it in and then if other people want to make their own choices and do something more indulgent they can but in reality they're less likely to make a poor decision as well so you might have helped them out 
This might be a good time to ask a question that's come in from our community. Janice asked, how do I exemplify positive choices at work without being one of those obnoxious zealots? Yeah, and I think that's an outstanding question. I, you know, I'm really cautious about that as well. If you, if you went out to dinner with me not knowing about this book at all, um, I, I think people would be surprised that I even wrote a book on this topic because I never talk about it when I'm out with friends or relatives or preach on these topics at all because I'm so sensitive about that. Hmm. And I think it is it is a really fine line where if you are zealous on these topics, especially in a if you're in a leadership role in a workplace, for example, I think it can have a backlash where people, especially here in the States, are very sensitive to employers kind of telling them what to do around their health. And so I think it is important to be careful and try and lead by example, like we've been talking about. That being said, in reality, as members of organizations, we do have a responsibility to figure out how we can build healthier cultures if for no other reason than our own economic interests. When you look at I don't I'm kind of surprised by the way people here in the United States don't necessarily realize this on a broad level but if I'm working for a company with 100 employees and I show up every morning and the guy next the guy sitting next to me brings in donuts for all of us every morning and he never gets up never exercises eats uh hot dogs and cheeseburgers every day for lunch and i go do everything perfectly from a dietary standpoint exercise standpoint in all these areas R- realistically my company and I personally would be paying just as much for his habits as I am for my own the way healthcare premiums are subsidized here in the United States. And so even if I don't eat the donuts and nobody else eats the donuts the guy brings in and he eats all the donuts, I'm still subsidizing his healthcare costs based on his decisions the way most employer and employee relationships are set up today. So I think there's a there's something that hopefully in the next year or two, I think people will start to talk about this more here in the United States because of more increased knowledge around what healthcare really costs employers now that there are public exchanges. But we've all got to start to rally around this more as powerful social networks as much as we think about it as employers trying to decrease healthcare costs because it's not really decreasing costs for the employer. It's decreasing and reining in your own premium and it's increasing your own salary over time if we can all get a handle around this. And, you know, I, not to get too far off topic here, but one of the things that I've seen over the years with all the employee engagement work that Gallup's done is that when employers are trying to work on improving employee engagement, they get 95, 100% of people participating because we all want to be more engaged at work, right? But when you look at what most employers are doing around healthcare today, they just send random individual programs to employees and almost do an end run around the big social network that is the organization. So there are very few companies who have initiatives and real programs where they're trying to activate the big social networks inside the company to think about how we can all be healthier and have more energy. And that's where I think there's just unlimited opportunity for leaders and organizations today. That is a huge opportunity, a big problem, uh, but with a big opportunity in front of us. Well, Tom, how can people find out more about 
this book, as well as all the other work that you've been doing at, at Gallup in general and helping organizations and people reach their, their potential? Yeah, you know, there's a lot more information around all the books on uh, my website at tomrath.org. And then as the book Eat, Move, Sleep is released, there will be a a website at eatmovesleep.org where even if people haven't read the book or purchased the book, they can go online and build their own personalized plan around a lot of these things that we're talking about today. So I hope that's something that people take advantage of. And we'll put a link to those in our show notes today. Tom Rath, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, Engagers. As we wrap up this episode, let me mention a little about how our team at Aspendale Communications has been putting Tom's book into practice. We've been taking the basic principles and practical suggestions from Eat, Move, Sleep and creating infographics, posters, newsletter articles, videos, and more. It's been helpful to a number of our clients because rather than adding to all the clutter of conflicting health information, gimmicky diets, and so forth, these employers are providing information that's more evidence-based and holistic, that whole Eat, Move, Sleep virtual cycle and as well as suggestions for small, sustainable steps that employees can take. That builds confidence and trust in the employer and their on-site or off-site health coaches, rather than making employees feel confused or overwhelmed. And it's helping support an overall culture of health. We'll provide links to some examples in our show notes for this episode, as well as links to Tom's information and his book, Eat, Move, Sleep, why small choices make a big difference. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash WHE2, as in Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 2. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section, or by clicking the red Send Voicemail button. You can also engage with us at facebook.com forward slash engagingleader or on Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy. Workforce Health Engagement is a production of Asmodale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications, helping mid-sized and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, not only health engagement, but also talent management, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at asmodalecommunications.com. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, where my guests and I share more ways to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. You can find both Workforce Health Engagement and the Engaging Leader podcasts in iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, over the long term, a program of the day won't help you boost employee health, productivity, and your bottom line. For sustainable success, you need an integrated approach to workforce health engagement.